All right, a summary of chapter eight, the flywheel and the doom loop. Key points. Good to great transformations often look like dramatic revolutionary events to those observing from the outside, but they feel like organic cumulative processes to people on the inside. The confusion of end outcomes, dramatic results, with process, organic and cumulative, skews our perception of what really works over the long haul. No matter how dramatic the end result, the good to great transformations never happened in one fell swoop. There was no single defining action or grand program, no one killer innovation, no solitary lucky break, no miracle moment. Sustainable transformations follow a predictable pattern of buildup and breakthrough, like pushing on a giant heavy flywheel. It takes a lot of effort to get the thing moving at all, but the persistent pushing in a consistent direction for a long period of time uh, makes the flywheel build momentum, eventually hitting a point of breakthrough. The comparison companies followed a different pattern. The doom loop. Rather than accumulating momentum turn by turn of the flywheel, they tried to skip buildup and jump immediately to breakthrough. Then, with disappointing results, they'd lurch back and forth, failing to maintain a consistent direction. The comparison companies frequently tried to create a breakthrough with large, misguided acquisitions. The good to great companies, in contrast, principally use large acquisitions after breakthrough to accelerate momentum in an already fast-spinning flywheel. Unexpected results. Those inside the good to great companies were often unaware of the magnitude of the transformations at the time. Only later in retrospect did it become clear. They had no name, tagline, launch event, or program to signify what they were doing at the time. The good to great leaders spent essentially no energy trying to create alignment, motivate the troops, or manage change. Under the right conditions, the problems of commitment, alignment, motivation, and change largely take care of themselves. Alignment principally follows from results and momentum, not the other way around. And finally, the short-term pressures of Wall Street were not inconsistent with following this model. The flywheel effect is not in conflict with these pressures. Indeed, it is the key to managing them. <coughs> Chapter 9. From Good to Great to Built to Last too fast, too furious. From good to great to built to last. Pablo Picasso says, It is your work in life that is the ultimate seduction. That's such a paintery thing to say, am I right? I mean, come on, guys. Isn't that just like a painter? When we began the Good to Great Research Project, we confronted a dilemma. How should we think about the ideas in Built to Last while doing the Good to Great Research? Remember, Built to Last was his other book. Briefly, Built to Last, based on a six-year research project conducted at Stanford Business School in the early 90s, answered the question, what does it take to start and build an enduring great company from the ground up? My research mentor and co-author, Jerry L. Poros, and I studied 18 enduring great companies, institutions that stood the test of time, tracing their founding in some cases back to the 1800s, while becoming the iconic great companies of the late 20th century. We examined companies like Procter & Gamble, American Express, Johnson & Johnson, and GE. 
One of the companies, Citicorp, now Citigroup, was founded in 1812, the same year Napoleon marched into Moscow. Cool. Cool story, bro. The youngest companies in the study were Walmart and Sony, which traced their origins back to 1945. Uh, you're not going to comment on the significance of that here? Similar to this book, we use direct comparison companies. 3M vs. Norton, Walt Disney vs. Columbia, Marriott vs. Howard Johnson, for 18-period comparisons. In short, we sought to identify the essential distinctions between great companies and good companies as they endure over decades, even centuries. When I had the first summer research team assembled for the Good to Great project, I asked, what should be the role of Built to Last in doing this study? I don't think it should play any role, said Brian Bakley. I didn't join this team to do a derivative piece of work. Neither did I, said Allison Sinclair. I'm excited about a new project and a new question. It shouldn't be very fulfilling to just fill in the pieces of your other book. But wait a minute, I responded. We spent six years on the previous study. It might be helpful to build on our previous work. Well, I seem to recall that when you got the idea for this study, when a McKinsey partner said that Built to Last didn't answer the question of how to change a good company into a great one, noted Paul Weissman. What if the answers are different? Back and forth, to and fro, the debate continued for weeks. God, that is a boring debate. Then Stephanie Judd weighed in and with the argument that swayed me. I love the ideas in Built to Last, and that's what worries me. I'm afraid that if we start with BTL as the frame of reference, we'll just go around in circles, proving our own biases. It became clear that there would be substantially less risk in starting from scratch, setting out to discover what we would, whether it marched, whether it matched previous work or not. That's right, my other book was just too damn compelling, so we had to ignore it. Box decide. Early in the research, then, we made a very important decision. We decided to conduct the research for good to great, as if built to last didn't exist. This was the only way to clear the key factors in transforming a good company into a great one with minimal bias from previous work. Then we could return to ask what, how, if at all, do the two studies relate? Now, five years later, with this book complete, we can stand back to look at the two works in the context of each other. Surveying across the two studies, I offer the following four conclusions. Oh, man! It feels like I aged five years reading through this book, but imagine actually spending five years on it. I guess he feels like he earned... A little bit of a, you know, buffing it up a little bit. A little bit of a repeat sentences and stuff. Like, look, I spent five years on this. All right? It just doesn't look impressive enough if, I, if it's 200 pages. I, I'm not going to be... I'm going to be a little wordy here, okay? Um, all right, so he's going to do four conclusions. One. When I consider the enduring great companies from built to last, I now see substantial evidence that the early readers followed the good to great framework. Leaders followed the good to great framework. The only real difference is that they did so as entrepreneurs in small early stage enterprises trying to get off the ground, rather than as CEOs trying to transform established companies from good to great. Two, in an ironic twist, I now see good to great not as a sequel to built to last, but as a prequel. 
Apply the findings in this book to create sustained great results as a startup or an established organization. Then apply the findings and built to last to go from great results to an enduring great company. Three, to make the shift from a company with sustained great results to an enduring great company of iconic stature, apply the central concept from built to last. Discover your core values and purpose beyond just making money, your core ideology, and combine this with the dynamic of combine this with the dynamic of preserve the core slash stimulate progress. Number four, tremendous resonance exists between the two studies. The ideas from each enrich and inform the ideas in the other. In particular, good to great trans answers a fundamental question raised, but not answered. In Built to Last, what is the difference between a good BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal, and a bad BHAG? Okay, that seemed weird, but on to the next section. Good to great in the early stages of built to last. Oh, I get it. He's just setting up the next four sections. Good to great in the early stages of built to last. Looking back on built to last, it appears that the enduring great companies did in fact go through a process of build up to breakthrough following the good to great framework during their formative years. Consider, for example, the build-up breakthrough flywheel pattern in the evolution of Walmart. Most people think that Sam Walton just exploded onto the scene with his visionary idea for rural discount retailing, hitting breakthrough almost as a startup company. But nothing can be further from the truth. Sam Walton began in 1945 with a single dime store. He didn't open his second store until seven years later. Walton built incrementally, step by step, turn by turn of the flywheel, until the hedgehog concept of large discount marts popped out as a natural evolution in the mid-60s. It took Walton a quarter of a century to grow from that single dime store to a chain of 38 Walmarts. Then, from 1970 to 2000, Walmart hit breakthrough momentum and exploded to over 3,000 stores with over 150 billion, yes, billion, in revenues. Just like the story of the chicken jumping out of the egg that we discussed in the flywheel chapter, Walmart had been incubating for decades before the egg cracked open. As Sam Walton himself wrote, Somehow over the years, people have gotten the impression that Walmart was just this great idea that turned into an overnight success. But it was an outgrowth of everything we'd been doing since 1945. And like most overnight successes, it was about 20 years in the making. If there ever was a classic case of build-up leading to a hedgehog concept, followed by a breakthrough momentum in the flywheel, Walmart is it. The only difference is that Sam Walton followed the model as an entrepreneur, building a great company from the ground up, rather than as a CEO, transforming an established company from good to great. But it's the same basic idea. <clears throat> Hewlett Packard provides another great example of the good to great ideas at work in the formative stages of a built-to-last company. For instance, Bill Hewlett and David Packard's entire founding concept for HP was not what, but who starting with each other. They'd been best friends in graduate school and simply wanted to build a great company together that would attract other people with similar values and standards. 
The founding minutes of their first meeting on August 23, 1937 begin by stating that they would design, manufacture, and sell products in the electrical engineering fields, very broadly defined. But then those same founding minutes go on to say the question of what to manufacture was postponed. Hewlett and Packard stumbled around for months trying to come up with something, anything, that would get the company out of the garage. They considered yacht transmitters, air conditioning control devices, medical devices, phonograph amplifiers, you name it. They built electronic bowling alley sensors, a clock drive for a telescope, and an electronic shock jiggle machine to help overweight people lose weight. It didn't really matter what the company made in the early days, as long as it made a technical contribution and would enable Hewlett Packard to build a company together and with other like-minded people. It was the ultimate first two, then what, startup. Later, as Hewlett and Packard scaled up, they stayed true to the guiding principle of first two. After World War II, even as revenues shrank with the end of their wartime contracts, they hired a whole batch of fabulous people streaming out of government labs with nothing specific in mind for them to do. Recall Packard's Law, which we cited in Chapter 3. No company can grow revenues consistently faster than its ability to get enough of the right people to implement that growth and still be a great company. Hewlett and Packard lived and breathed this concept and obtained a surplus of great people whenever this opportunity presented itself. Hewlett, Packard, Hewlett and Packard were themselves consummate level 5 leaders, first as entrepreneurs and later as company builders. Years after HP had established itself as one of the most important tech companies in the world, Hewlett maintained a remarkable personal humility. In 1972, HP Vice President Barney Oliver wrote in a recommendation letter to the IEEE Awards Board for the Founding Founders Award. While our success has been gratifying, it has not spoiled our founders. Only recently, at an executive council meeting, Hewlett remarked, Look, we've grown because the industry grew. We were lucky enough to be sitting on the nose when the rocket took off. We don't deserve a damn bit of credit. After a moment's silence, while everyone digested this humbling moment, Packard said, Well, Bill, at least we didn't louse it up completely. Shortly before his death, I had the opportunity to meet Dave Packard. Despite being one of Silicon Valley's first self-made billionaires, he lived in the same small house that he and his wife built for themselves in 1957, overlooking a simple orchard. The tiny kitchen with its dated linoleum and the simply furnished living room bespoke a man who needed no material symbols to proclaim, I'm a billionaire, I'm important, I'm successful. That's actually pretty crazy. His idea of a good time, said Bill Terry, who worked with Packard for 36 years, was to get some of his friends together to string some barbed wire. Packard bequeathed his $5.6 billion estate to a charitable foundation, and upon his death, his family created a eulogy pamphlet with a photo of him sitting on a tractor in farming clothes. The caption made no reference to his stature as one of the great industrialists of the 20th century. It simply read, read David Packard, 1912-1996, Rancher, etc. Level 5 indeed. Core Ideology The Extra Dimension of Enduring Greatness During our interview with 
Bill Hewlett, we asked him what he was most proud of in his long career. As I look back on my life's work, he said, I'm probably most proud of having helped create a company that by virtue of its values, practices, and success has had a tremendous impact on the way companies are managed around the world. What about being alive during the civil rights movement? No! I hated that! Nah, he's probably a great guy. Whatever, fuck me. The HB way, as it became known, reflected a deeply held set of core values that distinguished the company more than any of its products. These values included technical contribution, respect for the individual, responsibility to the communities in which the company operates, and a deeply held belief that profit is not the fundamental goal of a company. These principles, while fairly standard today, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, were radical and progressive in the 50s. David Packard said of businessmen from those days, while they were reasonably polite in their disagreement, it was quite evident that they firmly believed that I was not one of them, and obviously not qualified to manage an important enterprise. Hewlett and Packard exemplify a key extra dimension that helped elevate their company to the elite status of an enduring great company. A vital dimension for making the transition from good to great to built to last. That extra dimension is a guiding philosophy or a core ideology, which consists of core values and a core purpose, reason for being beyond, reason for being beyond just making money. These resemble the principles in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Never perfectly followed, but always present as an inspiring standard and an answer to the question of why it is important that we exist. Jesus. Enduring great companies don't exist merely to deliver returns to shareholders. Indeed, in a truly great company, profits and cash flow become like blood and water to a healthy body. They are absolutely essential for life, but they are not the very point of life. Hmm, I like that. I like how you put that. Actually, I think that's really well said. I like his analogy there. Or simile, whatever. We wrote in Built to Last about Merck's decision to develop and distribute a drug that cured river blindness. This painful disease afflicted over a million people with parasitic worms that swarmed through the eyes to cause blindness. Fucking terrifying. Because those who had the disease, tribal people in remote places like the Amazon, had no money... Merck initiated the creation of an independent distribution system to get the drug to remote villages and gave the drug away free to millions of people around the world. <sighs> I'm bored with your charity. To be clear, Merck is not a charity, charity organization, nor does it view itself as such. 
Indeed, it has consistently outperformed the market as a highly profitable company, growing to nearly $6 billion in profits and beating the market by over 10 times from 1946 to 2000. Yet despite its remarkable financial performance, Merck does not view its ultimate reason for being as making money. In 1950, George Merck II-D, also known as the second, son of the founder, set forth his company's philosophy. We try to remember that medicine is for the patient. It is not for the profits. The profits follow, and if we've remembered that, they have never failed to appear. The better we have remembered it, the larger they have been. An important caveat to the concept of core values is there are no specific right core values for becoming an, an enduring great company. No matter what core value you propose, we found an enduring great company that does not have that specific core value. A company need not have passion for its customers. Sony didn't. Or respect for the individual. Disney didn't. <laughs> or quality. Walmart didn't. Or social responsibility. Ford didn't in order to become enduring and great. This is one of the most paradoxical findings from Built to Last. Core values are essential for enduring greatness, but it doesn't seem to matter what these core values are. The point is not what core values you have, but that you have core values at all, that you know what they are, that you build them explicitly into the organization, and that you preserve them over time. You know, I mean, I think that makes sense, actually. I mean, it's the same thing, like, there's a lot of different strategies to get something done, like, I don't know why this is the first example I think of, but, like, like a baseball pitcher, they're not going to all have exactly the same style, right? But you have to find the way that works for you. I mean, I know very little about pitching, that's just what, uh, maybe a basketball player, you know, uh, if if uh, Shaquille O'Neal tried to play like Michael Jordan, he would not have ever become the Shaq attack, quite frankly. This notion of preserving your core ideology is a central feature of enduring great companies. The obvious question is, how do you preserve the core and yet adapt to a changing world? The answer? Embrace the key concept, concept of preserve the core slash stimulate progress. Enduring great companies preserve their core values and purpose while their business strategies and operating practices endlessly adapt to a changing world. This is the magical combination of preserve the core and stimulate progress. The story of Walt Disney exemplifies this duality. In 1923, an energetic 21-year-old animator moved, to, moved from Kansas City to Los Angeles and tried to get a job in the movie business. No film company would hire him, so he used his meager savings to rent a camera, set up a studio in his uncle's garage, and begin making animated cartoons. In 1934, Mr. Disney took the bold step, never before taken, to create successful full-length animated feature films, including Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi. In the 1950s, Disney moved into television with the Mickey Mouse Club. 
Also in the 50s, Walt Disney paid a fateful visit to a number of amusement parks and came away disgusted, calling them dirty, phony places run by tough-looking people. He decided that Disney could build something much better, perhaps even the best in the world, and the company launched a whole new business in theme parks, first with Disneyland and later with Walt Disney World and Epcot Center. And here he has a little diagram of a yin-yang. In white lettering against the black part, it says preserve, core values, core purpose. And in black lettering against the white part, it says change, cultural and operating practices, specific goals and strategies. It's kind of a cool graphic. Over time, Disney theme parks have become a cornerstone experience for many families from all over the world. Throughout all these dramatic changes, from cartoons to full-length feature animation, from the Mickey Mouse Club to Disney World, the company held firmly to a consistent set of core values that included passionate belief in creative imagination, fanatic attention to detail, abhorrence of cynicism, and preservation of the Disney magic. Mr. Disney, in quotes, Mr. Disney also instilled a remarkable constancy of purpose that permeated every new Disney venture. Namely, to bring happiness to millions, especially children. This purpose cut across national borders and has endured third time. When my wife and I visited Israel in 1995, we met the man who brought Disney products to the Middle East. The whole idea, he told us with pride, is to bring a smile to a child's face. That's really important here, where there aren't enough smiles on the children. Walt Disney provides a classic case of preserve the core and stimulate progress holding a core ideology fixed while changing strategies and practices over time, and its adherence to this principle is the fundamental reason why it's endured as a great company. Alright, there's another yin-yang, which I am less impressed with now, and, uh, it's just the specifics of Disney. Uh, okay, I'll run through it. Preserve passion for creative imagination, fanatical attention to detail, abhorrence of cynicism, the Disney magic, and bringing happiness to millions. Change, 1920s cartoons, 30s full-length feature animation, 50s television, Mickey Mouse Club, 60s theme parks, 80s international, 90s cruise line. Preserve the core... Oh, no, it's just stupid. Forget that. Good bags, bad bags, and other conceptual links. Bags, B-H-A-G-S. All right, please hold while I figure out what that means. Unless it's some sort of... If this is like an acronym, I'm going to be mad. Oh, bad... BHAG stands for Big Hairy Audacious Goal. Oh, I think he must have covered that. An idea conceptualized in the book, built to last.
In the table on page 198, I've outlined a sketch of conceptual links between the two studies. As a general pattern, the good to great ideas appear to lay the groundwork for the ultimate success of Built to Last. I like to think of good to great as providing the core ideas for getting a flywheel turning from build-up through breakthrough, while built to last outlines the core ideas for keeping a flywheel accelerating long into the future and elevating a company to iconic stature. You'll notice in examining the table that each of the good to great findings enables all four of the key ideas from built to last. To review briefly, these four key ideas are 1. Built to last. Okay, so that's the book we haven't read. To briefly review, although it's not part of this book, so we haven't read it. Those four core ideas are one, clock building, not time telling. Build an organization that can endure and adapt through multiple generations of leaders and multiple product life cycles. The exact opposite of being built around a single great leader or a single great idea. Two, Genius of and. Embrace both extremes on a number of dimensions at the same time. Instead of choosing A or B, figure out how to have A and B, purpose and profit, continuity and change, freedom and responsibility, etc. 3. Core ideology, instill core values, essential and enduring tenets and core purpose, fundamental reason for being beyond just making money, as principles to guide decisions and inspire people throughout the organization over a long period of time. 4. Preserve the core slash stimulate progress. Preserve the core ideology as an anchor point while stimulating change, improvement, innovation, and renewal in everything else. Change practices and strategies while holding core values and purpose fixed. Set and achieve bags consistent with the core ideology. <sighs> this is just like him saying all this stuff again. From good to great to build to last, conceptual links. So first he has a concept and from good to great and then the thing from the other built to last. So Level 5 leadership, it goes to clock building, not time telling. Level 5 leaders build a company that can tick along without them rather than feeding their egos by becoming uh, indispensable. Genius of and. Personal humility and professional will. Core ideology. Again, that's the good to great thing, and then it corresponds to the built to last thing of... Level 5 leaders are ambitious for the company and what it stands for, and they have a sense of purpose beyond their own success. Wait. Genius of and personal humility and professional will. Core ideology is to level 5 leaders are ambitious for the company and what it stands for. They have a sense of purpose beyond their own success. Preserve the core, stimulate progress, is to level five leaders are relentless in stimulating progress toward tangible results and achievement, even if it means firing their brothers. First who, then what? This is just so boring. I'm not... Oh, 
Jesus, no, I can't do this. This is just him. No, this isn't real additional insights. This is him just like, no, I'm not going to do that. Now it's an explanation of that. No. No, I refuse. I'm not going to belabor all the links from the above table. Really? Really? You have the fucking balls to come here and say you're not going to belabor that. You sick son of a bitch. Uh, But I'd like to highlight one particularly powerful link. The connection between bags and the three circles of the hedgehog concept. At Built to Last, we identified bags, again, B-H-A-G's, as a key way to stimulate progress while preserving the core. Uh, oh, it's pronounced B-hag. A B-hag, short for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal, It's a huge and daunting goal, like a big mountain to climb. It's clear, compelling, and people get it right away. A BHAG serves as a unifying focal... BHAG sounds like an offensive term. Uh, Serves as a unifying focal point of effort, galvanizing people and creating team spirit as people strive toward a finish line. Like the 60s NASA moon mission, a BHAG captures the imagination and grabs people in the gut. However, as exciting as BHAGs are... (laughs) We left a vital question unanswered. What is the difference between a bad BHAG and a good BHAG? Swimming from Australia to New Zealand would be a BHAG for me, but it would also kill me. We can now offer an answer to that question, drawing directly from the study of good to great companies. This is a box to side. Bad BHAGs, it turns out, are set with bravado. Good BHAGs are set with understanding. Indeed, when you combine quiet understanding of the three circles with the audacity of a BHAG, you get a powerful, almost magical mix. A superb example of this comes from Boeing in the 50s. Until the early 50s, Boeing focused on building huge flying machines for the military. The B-17 Flying Fortress, the B-29 Super Fortress, and the B-52 Intercontinental Jet Bomber Strato Fortress. However, Boeing had virtually no presence in the commercial aircraft market, and the airlines showed no interest in buying aircraft from Boeing. You make great bombers up there in Seattle. Why don't you just stick with that, they said in response to Boeing's inquiries. Today, we take for granted that most air travel takes place on Boeing jets. But in 1952, with almost no one outside the military flew on Boeing. Wisely, through the 40s, Boeing had strayed away from the commercial sphere, an arena in which McDonnell Douglas had vastly superior abilities in the smaller propeller-driven planes that composed the commercial fleet. In the early 50s, however, Boeing saw an opportunity to leapfrog McDonnell Douglas by marrying its experience with large aircraft to its understanding of jet engines. Led by a Level 5 leader named Bill Allen, Boeing executives debated the wisdom of moving into the commercial sphere. They came to understand that, whereas Boeing could not have been the best commercial plane maker a decade earlier, the cumulative experience in jets and big planes that they had gained from military contracts now made such a dream possible. 
They also came to see that the economics of commercial aircraft would be vastly superior to the military market, and, of no small importance, they were just flat-out turned on by the whole idea of building a commercial jet. We've got a little thing. We've got the, uh, what do you call them there? Them circles to interlock? Uh, Venn diagram. <laughs> In the middle it says BHAG. And we have what you're deeply passionate about, what you can be the best in the world at, and what drives your economic engine. So in 1952, Bill Allen and his team made the decision to spend a quarter of the company's entire net worth to build a prototype jet. Let's try this again. So. It was 1952. Bill Allen and his team made the decision to spend a quarter of the company's entire net worth to build a prototype jet that could be used for commercial aviation. They built the 707 and launched Boeing on a bid to become the leading commercial aviation company in the world. Three decades later, after bruising five of the most successful commercial jets in history, the 707, 727, 737, 747, and 757, Audrey Ladd just stuck around for the 757, Boeing stood as the absolute unquestioned greatest company in the commercial airline industry worldwide. Not until the late 90s would Boeing's number one position be seriously challenged, and it would take a government consortium in the form of Airbus to do it. Airbus played dirty. Here is the key point. Boeing's BHAG, which I'm still not comfortable saying, while huge and daunting, was not any random goal. It was a goal that made sense within the context of the three circles. Boeing's execs understood with calm equanimity that one, the company could become the best in the world at commercial jet manufacturing, even though it had no presence in the market. Two, the shift would significantly improve Boeing's economics by increasing profit per aircraft model. Three, the Boeing people were very passionate about the idea. So passionate, in fact, they were willing to kill. Boeing acted with understanding, not bravado, at this pivotal moment in its history. And that is one of the key reasons why it endured as a great company. Box aside, I found a note left for me. <laughs> I guess, I don't know. It read the Boeing case underscores a key point. Don't stick your nose where it don't belong. To remain great over time requires, on the one hand, staying squarely within the three circles. Don't step outside your circle. While on the other hand, being willing to change the specific manifestation of what's inside the three circles at any given point. Boeing in 1952 never left the three circles or abandoned this core ideology. But it created an exciting new BHAG and adjusted its hedgehog concept to include commercial aircraft. The 
Free Circle, BHAG framework, provides one powerful example of how the ideas from the two studies link together. And I'm not just saying this to bolster my own ego and prove that the things I said before are correct. And I'd like to offer it here as a practical tool for creating this link within your own organization. That's right. Listen up. Yet it alone will not make your company great and lasting. Yeah, believe it or not, one sentence I say is not going to be enough, Charlie. You gotta have guts. You gotta have brains. You gotta have looks. And boy, she had all three for miles. Creating and drawing great company requires all the key concepts from both studies, tied together and applied consistently over time. Furthermore, if you ever stop doing any of the key ideas, your organization will inevitably slide backward toward mediocrity. I'll slip into a booze spiral that I might never climb out of. Remember, it's much easier to become great than to remain great. Ultimately, the consistent application of both studies, one building upon the other, gives the best chance for creating greatness that lasts. I once held greatness in my hand and I let it slip through my fingertips. And I've been regretting it ever since. That's right, as I walk through the streets, I feel the weight of that form of greatness. I feel it like a monkey on my back. A monkey in a trench coat, constantly pounding on my back. Why, monkey, why? Why greatness? Huh? Almost a transition there. We haven't even invented those yet. During a break in the seminar, that I gave to a group of my ex-students from Stanford. One came up to me, brow furrowed. Maybe I'm just not ambitious enough, he said, but I don't really want to build a huge company. Is there something wrong with that? Of course. You're a goddamn pussy son of a bitch. Communist. Go be a communist in commie country, you com-com. Not at all, I replied. I was lying, of course. Greatness doesn't depend on size. That's what my wife always said. Can I get a rim shot for God's sake? I then told him about Sina Simontab, who runs the building where I have my research laboratory. Sina has created a truly great institution. It's an old 1892 red brick school building that's been renovated into the most extraordinary space, decorated and maintained with tremendous attention to detail, bordering on perfection. By one definition of results, attracting the most interesting people in Boulder, setting a standard that other local buildings measure themselves against, and generating the highest profit per foot of space, his small enterprise is truly a great institution in my hometown. Samantop has never defined greatness by size, and there's no reason for him to. There's a lot of truly great things in small packages in Boulder, like John Bernay Ramsey. 
Lord, I would just die if anything ever bad happened to her. Incidentally, I haven't watched the news since the 50s. I hope everything is going alright. We've still got segregation, right? Alright, alright, just making sure. The student paused for a moment, then said, Okay, I accept that I don't need to build a big company in order to have a great company, but even so, why should I try to build a great company? What if I just want to be successful? Alright, this is actually some interesting philosophical... <laughs> Hold on, take two. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that was possibly the dumbest thing I've ever said in my life. That was real, that wasn't a joke. I just said, this is a very interesting philosophical... You understand why that's a fucking dumb thing to say, right? I'm trying to sound smart. I sound real dumb. Real, real dumb. Alright, um... What if I just wanted to be successful? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's actually an interesting, uh, you know, discussion I'm gonna have. The question brought me up short. It smacked me upside the head. Like a cold cock from a... No, not like that. Like a cold, like when someone hits you and you're not looking. With a bottle, I was gonna say. This was not a lazy person asking. He'd started his own business as a young man, put himself through law school, and after graduate school became a driven entrepreneur. That's right. He'd like to take taxis. Can I get a goddamn rim shot up here? He's got remarkable energy. Oh, well, good for him. An intense and infectious enthusiasm. Oh, well, aren't you the lucky one? Next, you're going to tell me he has a smile on his face. Well, you never had a tomb kill your brother. Of all the students I've known over the years, he's one that I have little doubt will be enormously successful. That's right, he's going to be successful and enormous. Yet he questions the whole idea of trying to build something great and lasting. Well, perhaps that's why nothing in this world lasts. And all of our efforts are somewhat futile. As even the sun itself will someday implode. But I digress. I can offer two answers. First, I believe that it is no harder to build something great. By the way, this is an interesting thing. I don't mean to make light of it. Don't be fooled by the fact I'm doing a stupid voice. First, I believe it is no harder to build something great than to build something good. Interesting. Go on. It might be statistically more rare to reach greatness, but it does not require more suffering than perpetuating mediocrity. Now that... That, my friend, is an excellent point. He is redefining, if I may. You know what, I'm gonna... Can we bring it down? Can we bring the can we bring the music down? Thank you. It's my producer Greg, everybody. Um, it might be statistically more rare to reach greatness, but it does not require more suffering. Now, 
Because when you read that thing, it's no harder to build something great than to build something good. Immediately. <laughs> God, fucking immediately. What the fuck? Immediately, you're like, okay, well, you're dumb. Obviously, it is. You just think of the thing that's great and then, like, try half as hard. And that's how you do it. Put less effort into it. It's easy. In fact, it is the definition of easy. Um... But he's like, well, ultimately, it doesn't require more suffering. And that's how I'm defining um, how hard something is. And I think that's an excellent, excellent point. You know, it's it'll alleviate something else down the road. I think is what he's going to get. But in any case, it's a good point. Indeed, if some of the comparison companies in our study are any indication, it involves less suffering and perhaps even less work. The beauty and power of the research findings is that they can radically simplify our lives while increasing our effectiveness. There is great solace in the simple fact of clarity about what is vital and what is not. Box decide, indeed, the point of this entire book is not that we should add these findings to what we're already doing and make ourselves even more overworked. No, the point is to realize that much of what we're doing is at best a waste of energy. Wow. If we organize the majority of our work time around applying these principles and pretty much ignored or stopped doing everything else, our lives would be simpler and our results vastly improved. I mean, that's one of those things that's like sometimes people who seem really boring do really well. And let me clarify that. It's not that they seem really boring, but they really have everything figured out. It's that they are boring. And that gives them an advantage in figuring out things like this. Because everyone has certain strategies they employ. And you try to adapt make the best of your core strategies this is me now I guess I'm inadvertently relating it to this but you have your personal core values and your ideologies ideologies whatever I like ideologies because that's how that weird foreign guy says it that's cool Um, and you have your strategies with how you interact with the world essentially um And so sometimes something that's very effective in one arena is easier for one person to find. But overall, you don't want to be like them. But you might want to take something from how they address a certain aspect of life. Let me illustrate this point with a non-business example. Well, I just did that. The last story of the book. Now, I don't know if he's saying this is going to be the last story of the book. Which, you know, cue the parade music. Or if he means it was the last story of the other book that I wrote. In which case, cue the Debbie Downer sound effect. The coaching staff of a high school cross-country running team recently got together for dinner after winning its second state championship in two years. That's nearly one every year. 
The program had been transformed in the previous five years from good, top 20 in the state, to great, consistent contenders for the state championship on both the boys' and girls' teams. I don't get it, said one of the coaches. Why are we so successful? (laughs) We don't work any harder than other teams. And what we do is just so simple. Why does it work? He was referring to the hedgehog concept of the program. Captured in the simple statement, We run best at the end. We run best at the end of workouts. We run best at the end of races. And we run best at the end of the season when it counts the most. Everything is geared to this simple idea, and the coaching staff knows how to create this effect better than any other team in the state. For example, they place a coach at the 2-mile mark of a 3.1-mile race to collect data as the runners go past. But unlike most teams, which collect time splits, minutes per mile running pace, this team collects place splits, what place the runners are in as they go by. Then the coaches calculate not how fast the runners go, but how many competitors they pass at the end of the race, from mile two to the finish. This is interesting. They actually have a different approach than other people. They then use this data to award, quote, head bones after each race. Head bones are beads in the shape of shrunken skulls, which the kids make into necklaces and bracelets, symbolizing their vanquished competitors. That's from the book. The kids learn how to pace themselves and race with confidence. We run best at the end, they think, at the end of a hard race. So if I'm hurting bad, then my competitors must hurt a whole lot worse. doesn't quite of equal importance is what they don't waste energy on for example when the head coach took over the program she found herself burdened with expectations to do fun programs and rah-rah stuff to motivate the kids and keep them interested parties special trips and shopping adventures to nike outlets and inspirational speeches She quickly put an end to nearly all that distracting and time-consuming activity. Look, she said, This program will be built on the idea that running is fun, racing is fun, improving is fun, and winning is fun. If you're not passionate about what we do here, then go find something else to do. The result? The number of kids in the program nearly tripled in five years, from 30 to 82. Before the boys' team won the first-ever state cross-country championship in the school's history, she didn't explicitly set the goal or try to motivate the kids towards it. Instead, she let the kids gain momentum, seeing for themselves, race by race, week by week, that they could beat anyone in the state. Then, one day on a training run, one boy said to his teammates, Hey, I think we could win state. Yeah, I think so too, said another. Everyone kept running. The goal quietly understood. The coaching staff never once mentioned the state championship idea until the kids saw for themselves they could do it. This created the strongest culture of discipline possible, as the seven varsity runners felt personally responsible for winning state, a commitment made not to the coaches, but to each other. One team member even called all his teammates the night before the state race just to make sure they're all getting ready for bed early. No need for the coaches to be disciplinarians on this team. Hammering through the last mile, passing competitors, 
We were invested at the end. Yeah, I remember that. Each kid hurt. But knew it would hurt a lot more if he had to look his teammates in the eyes as the only one who failed to come through. No one failed, and the team beat every other team at the state to meet at the state meet by a large margin. You could just say they won. First they beat the team from Jacksonville. Then they beat the team team from Mississippi. Eh, it would have been better if I didn't. <sighs> The head coach began rebuilding the whole program around the idea of first two. One of the assistant coaches is a 300-pound ex-shot putter, hardly the image of a lean distance runner, but he's without question the right who. He shares the values and has the traits needed to help build a great team. As the program built momentum, it attracted more kids and more great coaches. People want to be part of this spinning flywheel. They want to be part of a championship team. They want to be part of a first-class culture. When the cross-country team posts yet another championship banner in the gym, more kids sign up. The gene pool deepens. It's a weird way to describe it. Like talent pool, maybe? The gene pool deepens? That seems weird. The team gets faster, which produces more championships, which attracts more kids, which creates even faster teams, and so forth. And the infectious flywheel effect... Are these coaches suffering more than other teams to create a great program? Are they working harder? No! In fact, one of them's 300 pounds! In fact, all the assistant coaches have full-time professional jobs outside of coaching. That, I don't see how that furthers your point, but... Uh, engineers, computer technicians, teachers, and they work for essentially no pay. Carving precious time out of their busy lives to be building a great program. I think that's true most cross-country programs in high school. They're just focusing on the right things, not the wrong things. They're doing virtually everything we write about in this book, within their specific situation and not wasting time on anything that doesn't fit. Simple, clean, straightforward, elegant, and a heck of a lot of fun. The point of this story is that these ideas work. I hope that's, yeah, that's the point of all the stories in your book. <laughs> Fucking... When you apply them in any position, in any situation, they make your life and your experience better while improving results. And along the way, you just might make what you're building great. The point of that sentence was to buttress the comments made in the previous sentence. So I ask again, if it's no harder, given these ideas, the results better, and the process so much more fun, well, why wouldn't you go for greatness? I'm Troy McClure. You might remember me from other such help films as Get Confident, Stupid! And Smoking Your Way to Thinness. To be clear, I am not suggesting that going from good to great is easy or that every organization will successfully make the shift. By definition, it's not possible for everyone to be above average. But I am asserting that those who strive to turn good into great find the process no more painful or exhausting than those who settle for just letting things wallow along in mind-numbing mediocrity. I think that is actually, this is John, me, saying that is an excellent point. And I think it's something that I thought about a lot um, on Tuesday. <laughs> uh, a lot. Uh, that wasn't even a good to great joke. That was. Um, I thought about it a lot in the past. Uh, yes, turning good to great... 
uh, takes energy, but the building of momentum adds more energy back into the pool than it takes out. I'm glad he didn't specify it as the gene pool. Still leaves a weird taste in my mouth. Uh, conversely, perpetually perpetuating mediocrity is an inherently depressing process that drains more energy out of the pool than it puts back in. The energy pool? Like, whatever. But there's a second answer to the question of why greatness. Oh, I forgot we were doing that. So that's, we're going back to why the guy who asked why at his Stanford Business School. One that is at the very heart of what motivated us to undertake this huge project in the first place. This huge project in the first place. The search for meaning. Or more precisely, the search for meaningful work. I asked the head coach of the cross-country program why she felt compelled to make it great. She paused before answering. That's a really good question. Long pause. It's really hard to answer. More pause. I guess it's because I really care about what we're doing. I believe in running and the impact it can make on these kids' lives. I want them to have a great experience and to have the experience of being part of something that absolutely is first class. Now for the interesting twist. The coach has an MBA from an elite business school and is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate in economics, having won the prize for best undergraduate honors thesis at one of the most selective universities in the world. She found, however, that most of her classmates, what her most of her classmates went on to do, investment banking on Wall Street, starting internet companies, management consulting, working for IBM or whatever, held no meaning for her. She just didn't care enough about those endeavors to want to make them great. Oh, that's really... I like this lady. <laughs> I like how she's an underachiever. No, really. She seems cool. For her, those jobs held no meaningful purpose. And so she made the decision to search for meaningful work. Work about which she could have a passion. Uh, such passion that the question, why try for greatness, would seem almost tautological. Hmm. Tautological. Not familiar. T-A-U-T. Tautology is a useless restatement. Oh, wow. I feel like I just got punked. You're going to throw that in at the, rest, at the end of this book? We're saying the same thing twice using different words. Wow, that was an example of it in the sentence. Speedy sprint is tautology because sprint already means speedy running. The term tautology originates from the Greek word tautologos, meaning repeating what is said. Um, why try for greatness uh, would seem almost tautological. If you're doing something you care that much about and you believe in its purpose deeply enough, then it's impossible to imagine not trying to make it great. It's just a given. I've tried to imagine the level five leaders of the companies we've studied answering the question, why greatness? Of course, most would say, we're not great. We could be so much better. But pushed to answer, come on, goddammit, 
Why try for greatness? I believe they would respond much like the cross-country coach. They're doing something they really care about. Making money. <laughs> about which they have a great passion. Like Bill Hewlett, they might care first and foremost about creating a company that by virtue of its values and success has a tremendous impact on the way companies are managed around the world. Or like Ken Iverson, they might feel a crusader's purpose to obliterate the oppressive class hierarchies that cause degradation of both labor and management. Wow. Alright. Or like Darwin Smith at Kimberly Clark. They might derive a tremendous sense of purpose from the inner quest for excellence itself, being driven from within to make anything they touch the best it can be. Or perhaps like Lyle Everingham at Kroger, or Cork Walgreen at Walgreens. They might have grown up in the business and just really love it. You don't need to have some grand existential reason for why you love what you're doing, or to care deeply about your work, although you might. All that matters is that you do love it, and that you do care. So, the question of why greatness is almost a nonsensical question. Mm. Mm, that makes me feel like you didn't actually address the question at all. Just that sentence right there is like, okay, well, you're, you're not really... You don't get it. <clears throat> if you're engaged in work that you love and care about for whatever reason, then the question needs no answer. The question is not why, but how. All right. I mean, I see what you're saying, but... Box decide. Indeed, the real question is not why greatness, but what work makes you feel compelled to try to create greatness? If you have to ask the question, why should we try to make it great, isn't success enough, then you're probably engaged in the wrong line of work. <clears throat> That's fair. I see what you're saying. Perhaps your quest to be part of building something great will not fall in your business life, but find it somewhere. If not in corporate life, then perhaps in making your church great. If not there, then perhaps a nonprofit or a community organization or a class you teach. Get involved in something that you care so much about that you want to make it the greatest it can possibly be, not because of what you'll get, but just because it can be done. Hey, why'd you make that great? Because I fucking could. When you do this, you'll start to grow, inevitably, toward becoming a level 5 leader. Early in the book, we wondered about how to become level 5, and we suggested that you start by practicing the rest of the findings. But under what conditions will you have the drive and discipline to fully practice the other findings? Perhaps it's when you care deeply enough about the work in which you're engaged, and when your responsibilities line up with your own personal three circles. When all these pieces come together, not only does your work move toward greatness, but so does your life. For, in the end, it is impossible to have a great life unless it is a meaningful life. And it is very difficult to have a meaningful life without meaningful work. 
Perhaps then you might gain that rare tranquility that comes from knowing that you've had a hand in creating something of intrinsic excellence that makes a contribution. Indeed, you might even gain the deepest of all satisfactions, knowing that your short time here on this earth has been well spent, and that it mattered. Well, that's the end of the regular chapters. Next will be epilogue, frequently asked questions. That was nice. <laughs>